Hey, everybody. Hi, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Liz. Hi, Olivia. How you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so excited for everybody to hear this episode. Yeah, welcome to Women, Magic, and Power. Today's a good one. Today we have the Reverend Lori Vale. Correct. Tell us a little bit about her. So... Lori has all kinds of stories and she has had a crazy journey. Um, I've known Lori since 2008 when we taught together at a community college in Seattle. Um, And you'll hear so much more about her journey, but right now Lori is the full-time pastor at a non-Roman Catholic church in East Rochester, New York called the Church of Mary Magdalene. Yeah, this is a a long episode and it's worth it. So enjoy it, we're gonna jump right in. All right. All right. We're doing this? We're doing it. Hello, I'm Liz. Hi, I'm Olivia. And I'm Lori. Hi, Lori. Hi. (laughs) Tonight we have the Reverend Lori Vale with us. And we're very excited to talk to her and hear about her spiritual journey and all kinds of interesting things. Um, Let's start out. Why don't you, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you started um, in terms of geography, religion, that sort of thing? Mm. I was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And when I was two, my family moved to Texas. I spent 21 years in Texas. And although my family was not religious at all, my great grandmother who helped raise me after my mother left my father when I was six, was a devout Southern Baptist who picked me up for church every Sunday morning in a pea green 1963 station wagon and took me to church. And I first felt a call to ordained ministry when I was about eight years old. And I there's something in the evangelical church called an altar call, where at the end the pastor says, if you want to give your life to Jesus, this is when you need to come forward. and just say the words that Jesus is your savior and you'll be saved. So um, I went forward and told them that I felt called to ministry and they fainted. They didn't faint. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't faint. You could be a nun. (laughs) It turns out, well, so Southern Baptists are a little bit different Catholics. There's no nuns. (laughs) Oh, okay. Oh, wow. The Catholicism is strong in this one. (laughs) I love it. You see the force within me? (laughs) I do. Um, So I let them know that I felt called to be a pastor and they just giggled they thought it was cute Mm. and they let me know that women can be missionaries or they can be the wives of pastors but they can't actually be pastors themselves all right well different but similar yeah like yeah yeah. they would have never said go be a nun because you know they thought papists were the devil's work so (laughs) so how does your eight-year-old self react to that mostly annoyance I was annoyed that they thought that this would not come to be because I felt very strongly that I was being told it would come to be and I want to dig in a little more into that because you're not the first person to talk to us about eight or nine year old like calling Um, and so it's something that it's come to our attention is like oh there might be something there Mm -hmm. that around that age 
there's something that you can either tune into or, you know, right. never have it. So what did you feel? Well, I, I should go back actually to when I was five and tell you that when I was five, I discovered that God made me special. <laughs> that sounds so obnoxious. How did you discover that? I was sitting at the breakfast table and I don't know what prompted it, but I put my hand up in front of me and I realized that if I put my hand up in front of my field of vision, I could still see everything behind my hand. Now, of course, this is an optical thing our brains do, right? But to me, this was evidence at five that I was chosen by God for something special. And there, you know, there's all this research on attachment theory and children who don't get the love they need and the support they need and how that plays out. I would say that I am the antithesis of that. In that moment at five, I understood that I was special and it went into me on a cellular level. And so everything that happened since, even some really tragic and traumatic stuff, has not been able to shake this kind of foundational understanding in me that I'm worthwhile and that I'm meant to do something that's worthwhile. That's amazing. It really is. And it's, I didn't do anything to earn it. Obviously, I was five years old. And yeah. there's a lot of epigenetic research now to suggest that it, it's even part of how I was born, right? Um, so I'm very grateful for it. And I recognize that it's something that not everybody has. If I could inject it into every human on the planet, I would. So at eight, I felt like they were full of poop and I was right. (laughs) And I was fightful enough at eight to be irritated by it. But I also have always just had this innate sense of me, in me of I'm gonna keep walking until I figure out where I'm going. And so I just, kept trying different things and running into different roadblocks and trying different things and running into different roadblocks. And that was pretty much how I spent my childhood and my entire adult. (laughs) Sure. And we'll explore the details of some of that. Um, Oh, I don't know that it's that interesting. There's the story. Ta-da. So how long did you stay under the umbrella of the Southern Baptists? Um, So I was a devout part of that church until I was about 13 years old. And then I graduated, if you will, I just put quotation marks around my words, um, to the Pentecostal church. Uh, And I like to talk about it this way. I was looking for smiter God. You know, the, the Hebrew Bible is full of stories written from the perspective of people who are traumatized, who are desperate, and they're calling on God to help in a way that smites the enemy. And I was being sexually abused. So I was looking for smiter God. And the First Baptist Church was a little too friendly for that. So I ran away from home one evening, came back the next day, and got baptized in the Pentecostal church and thought, now, now I've got it right, and smite your God will appear. (laughs) And how did that work out? It didn't work out in quite the way I thought. I learned a ton. From that experience in the Pentecostal church, I figured out that the experience of God can be a body experience. 
And there's this really fantastic book whose author is eluding me right now, but it's Pentecostalism as Mysticism. Mm -hmm. It's kind of looking at the ways that global Pentecostalism, mm -hmm. because of its reclamation of the body as a source of knowing, is a really profound mystic path, especially in a westernized culture that says the body is not a way of knowing that's legitimized and really is in the realm of the female and all that yucky stuff. So, <laughs> so it gave me a real empowerment. And I mean, as we talk, it's going to get a little annoying, but kind of every story I have for you, if you're asking about my upbringing, goes like this. Something shitty happened, and then it felt like it was transformed by XYZ and became part of my superpowers. Well, but, so, and I'm going to stop you there. That's the part that we like to dig in on this podcast. Like, I, that's the magic. That's the power. That's the transformation and the journey that I think can inspire a lot of people to go through their shit because it may transform into this, you know, the caterpillar and the butterfly. Right. Like, Or it will, and it'll just be dependent on whether or not it can be seen, right? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. what we want to see and what we're able to see often ally mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. All right. So, shitty story. Now you're in the Pentecostal church. Yes. I stayed there for a couple of years till I was about 15. Then I got tired of Smiter God not fixing the sexual abuse while I was simultaneously not cutting my hair, not wearing makeup, not wearing jewelry, and not wearing pants. Now, to this day, I still don't wear pants. So. <laughs> um. Smiter God lives on. Exactly. I'm not sorry I spent time looking for a smiter God, but what I got to learn from it was that doesn't exist because that's not anything that could be divine. Hate is not divine. <laughs> mm. Now, what was going on in your family when you were like, I'm not going to do your religion, I'm going to do my own? Ah, the only religious person in my family was my great-grandmother. Oh, okay. So I was always the black sheep of the family for having a religiosity. Interesting. They all thought I was weird, and guess what? <laughs> They mostly still do. <laughs> <laughs> um... I will add to the story, especially since you brought up the word nun, that when I was feeling called to a past, to being a pastor, in the couple of years after that, I also realized that it could have been easily and perhaps more appropriately even fulfilled by being a nun. I didn't really know what a nun was. I knew that they were women who got to read, spend time with each other, garden, have lives that didn't revolve around taking care of some cowboy and a bunch of kids. And I... Which sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. I mean, look at the Beguines, and you've got pretty much what my ideal life would look like. <laughs> They're from the 1400s. They lasted five minutes, but they were a worthwhile five minutes. <laughs> um, so... I, I, I was like, I think I need to be a nun. And I told my dad when the movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas came out and we all watched it as a family. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I need to either be a whore or a nun. I see. Because again, the movie portrayed it as hanging out with a bunch of women, wearing very cool clothes, doing some dance numbers, crying on each other's shoulders. That sense of beloved community was always a very deep draw for me. 
So I hung out with the Pentecostals until I realized that, you know, I was not enjoying becoming an adolescent with no smiter God doing the work and also all these restrictions I had put on myself. So I kind of one night threatened God that if shit didn't change, I was out. And shit didn't change. So. Yeah, because that doesn't so work. So I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I felt really weird being non-religious for the next few years. Mm. Like that felt all wrong to me. But it felt probably the way rebellion does to any teenager. I wasn't rebelling against my parents. My dad told me he was an atheist just to mess with my head and make me realize that I could love people who weren't like me. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was rebelling against God when I was a teenager. Which is understandable from like the little that you've said about yeah. what's going on, right? Like yeah. you're like, okay, well, this is shitty and you should be helping me and you yeah. aren't, so screw you. And yet I never questioned whether I was like maybe not good enough or had I done something wrong. All of that, not even part of my thinking. I just knew it felt really weird to not be in deep relationship with a sense of the divine. Um, so fast forward to having my first child at 24, and I, I'm just going to speak for myself, giving birth, there was zero opportunity from that moment on to not have a relationship with the divine, right? Yeah. Like here's another way I'm organically Catholic uh, or even maybe Eastern Orthodox the name for Mary in the Eastern Orthodox tradition is the Theotokos, the God-bringer, right? Mm. And that notion that we bring the body of God to this planet is so profound and sacred that for me it was a no-brainer. So simply giving birth was a reclamation of my sense of the divine. And my reclamation of religiosity and religion was much slower. But once I remembered that I could see through my hand, if you will, there was nothing to do but just keep putting one foot in front of the other. So, so did you raise your children with any kind of organized religious worship? I sent them to UU churches with friends. I talked to them about Buddhism. I gave them the stories of Judeo-Christianity, um, the way most people give their children Disney stories, um, all from the perspective, and you know, part of this is my anthropology background and the fact that I was teaching English, um, from the perspective that anything that allows us to make sense of what we're experiencing, any lens we have with which to understand our place and our role in the world is worth having. So never with a sense of this is the right thing and that's the wrong thing, but always with a yes and kind of perspective. Here are ways to understand yes. everything and everyone that's around you. Exactly. In fact, I... I like to think I did a really good job, particularly because my first child at like five or six years old was in the back of the car and asked me what happens after you die. And I said, well, you know, some people believe it's the end of everything. Some people believe that you 
go up into this place where everybody's happy all the time. And, and some people believe that you actually come back to the planet to do things again as, you know, a person or even maybe an animal or a bug. And <laughs> my youngest child said, that's the one I'm going to do. Like it was like <laughs> a menu that he got to choose from. He's like, I'm coming back as a bug. <laughs> So, you know, I, I felt validated by that. <laughs> so I tried to give them an understanding of why people have religious views and a respect for religious views without a doctrine or dogma to guide their religious views. Mm. That was an interesting eyebrow you just raised. Well, no, because I'm thinking about our daughters, right? And like our kids and how... I, I think I'm doing the same thing as you are. Mine are nine and nine and three, and yours are 12 and nine. Mm -hmm. Yes. So in my case, I feel like I'm starting. I mean, I started with Florence, the oldest one before, right? Obviously she's older, but um, <laughs> but it just makes me feel like I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't want to put them into like a dogma or a doctrine or, or like, you know, you got to do one, two, three, and four mm -hmm. to gain your place somewhere else right. versus like, Worthiness you know, is a big part of it, right? It really is. Like if we're mm -hmm. teaching children they are inherently unworthy without a particular protocol or formula for getting out of that unworthiness, I think we have a real problem on our hands. 100%. You know, and I do children's education at the church and yeah. we do all the sacraments with the children. But the perspective, for example, of baptism is these waters of baptism remind this community that you are a child of God and we owe you something as a member of our community. They've got nothing to do with requiring or asking God to deem a child worthy. That's inherent. Right? Yes. And we say that. Yes. So. Yeah. And, and that's not the point of view from a lot of the churches True. out there. So that's the, that's the reason why I think yeah. we chose... All right, we're going to step away from this. Yeah. You can know about it. We can discuss. We can go through this. Right. And we don't need to, you know, yeah. and we will allow you to choose whatever your path is. But definitely, I think it's what caused our generation to step away from it. Yeah. Not the entire generation, but a lot of us, you know. I will say reclaiming the ritual has yeah. a lot of power to it because I can tell you from an anthropological perspective, ritual has meaning and allows us to make meaning. So much so. So for me, I was very ritualistic in how we approached our family life, et cetera, because I was unwilling to have the children just kind of learning about everything academically without having something in their toolbox with which they could start creating a sense of the world that made sense and their place in it that made sense. Well, and I think it's um, it can be tricky to raise children the way we're discussing, right? Because when you don't have one particular framework, how do you build the ritual? How do you mm -hmm. build the meaning? Right. Um, and I, I find it difficult. And I see ways in which my kids ritualize things that I'm not intending them to necessarily, yeah. but you know, well, this is what we do. It's organic. You know, this is what we do on Thanksgiving, and this is what we do, you know, always for Christmas, even though Jesus is really not involved, you know, mm -hmm. and um, 
Yeah. So it's interesting the way that family rituals can replace that kind of thing. Um, Or even transformation of the rituals that we already have been handed, right? So my perspective in leading the, the church congregation that I serve is that we're about reclaiming the sacraments for what their intended purpose was, right? Removing all that all the layers that the medieval times gave us, for example, um, and then transforming things into what they must be to really be doing the work of love mm-hmm. right now. And, and I was going to say that, right? Like, yeah. it all comes back to connecting back to love. Absolutely. Right? It's. I was listening to uh, some regular old Christmas Christian music tonight at a concert, and, you know, these... Christmas songs, we always hear the first verse and the and the refrain. Oh, sure. They sang the second verse, and it turns out that, I can't even, I think it's Oh Holy Night, but I can look it up for you. Um, but the second verse is the law of love and the gospel of peace. And I was like, gee, <laughs> no pun intended, Jesus Christ, <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? That's everything right there. The law That's is love. Everything. And the gospel is peace. And that was the line. I said it wrong. It's the verb. The law is love and the gospel is peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and along the way that got, you know, forgotten or messed up. A thousand years of patriarchy. Yeah. So we can just say thank you, Constantine, right? Mm-hmm. The minute this marginalized group of people who understood that the stumbling block to the rest of the world was the actual way to understanding everything is going to be okay, had real power. <laughs> yeah. The minute that happened, everything changed. Well, and people are looking, right? Like for safety and for, you know, feeling, understanding their place in the world, like you said. And so there is something to the familiarity of like going to church every Sunday and see being part of a community. And all of that is beautiful. It's just the other teachings that are the worthiness, like you were saying, and the other stuff that got meddled with power along the years and the millennia and everything else. So at this point nowadays, it's hard to know what was the original story and what has been like passed down. You know, you know, it isn't for hundreds of for years. For scholars, though, that's the part that's mind-boggling, is you go to seminary and you get a very, very clear picture of what was early church, of where things shifted, why it shifted, what sociocultural context it was born in, transformed in, etc. And this is very rarely what we're hearing from the pulpit. And that is shocking. Yeah. That is shocking. I there agree. There is no question that every one of the Gospels was written 60 to 100 years after the death of Jesus. No one argues about that. But if you tell the average person sitting in the pew, they're like, you've lost your mind. It was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, <laughs> and John. And he called them all by name. And they were all fishermen and tax collectors. <laughs> no. <laughs> no yeah. one thinks this who has been educated to be a pastor. But why are pastors not saying it? We infantilize our congregations to keep them compliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then you circles, you will be circles back to power, right? Of course it does. So I was, you know, I was raised Catholic, and I went through the whole CCD rigmarole, all the sacraments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
love the ritual, had some issues with some of the teachings. And I love history. I love context. I want to know why we think the way we think because it's all based on what has come before, right? And how these things are connected. And I will never forget that I don't know if it was my first or second semester at college, I took a class in the early Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And so it started, you know, round about the year 100. And it was this amazing professor. She was so dynamic. And all of, you know, the first month was probably from the year 100 until Constantine's conversion to Christianity. And after that month, I had a completely different view 100% of Christianity because the early church is not the same as the Roman Catholic Church in which we were raised 100% and there you know in the the Roman Catholic Church there's good people doing good things yes but the institution has changed the belief Mm, has changed the... Has shifted the action on the belief. <laughs> yes, has shifted the action on the belief. And I think a church like yours, Lorian, we'll ask you to describe it more in a minute, um, is such an important thing, and it is such a reclaiming of these original ideas. Love and peace. Yeah. And it's that simple. And equity and justice. Of course. Right? And that's where we run into trouble over and over. The Roman church as an institution isn't a bad thing. It gets operationalized in a way that excludes. And that is directly at odds with anything we understand about the teachings of this Semitic man, Jesus, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. who was an apocalyptic, radical preacher, right? Yeah. And so it's always mildly amusing to me. All right. So hold on. (laughs) Let's go a little back on your story. You are 24. You have your first kid. What happened? Are you studying? Are you married? Like, Oh, I was married. Yeah. Um, I had my first kid. I had dropped out of college. Uh, At that point, I had... Oh, no. I was back in community college because I had failed out of university. Um, But I I was back in community college, then got pregnant, had her, and then didn't go back to community college until I had my second kid. And I'm laying on the bed. He's probably a month old. And there's a sunbeam shining in the window on his precious little face. And I thought, oh, my God, if something happens to my marriage or to my husband, I have to support these two little children. <laughs> oh, my God. It was such an epiphany with, like, the God ray and everything on the baby's face. Um, you can't deny it. Theotokos, like right? Look, I just brought God to earth. Now what? That's right. <laughs> uh, so I went back to college. And, you know, I, I just kept plugging along at my education in all the weird ways it was available to women like me until I got it done the way I wanted to get it done. Um, Continued having children as well. (laughs) And when you say women like me, is it because you were having children? Yeah. 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 And then when my youngest was two, um, their father, uh, in the early days of online meeting people, met someone and left our relationship and then I was like oh my god 
thank God I have a college degree. So yeah, yeah. But but again, my relationship with the divine was restored on my side. There's this great Meister Eckhart quote, right? God is at home. It is we who have gone out for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) That was very much what it was. It was a turning back to remembering, oh, yeah. Um, That just was organically there again for me after Kellen was born. And I just slowly kept trudging along up hills when they were uphill and trying to slide down on my butt when it was downhill (laughs) until I ended up getting to this moment. So... So you were in Texas when you had all your kids? I was in Texas when I, no, not in Texas for any of them. I was in Texas until I was 23 and then ended up moving to Washington State. Had all three of my kids in Washington State. Lived there, met Liz there. Um, I lived there 20 years total and then moved here. Here is Upstate New York, Rochester, New York, yeah. So after your marriage was done, Mm. you then went on a slightly different kind of relationship path. Yes, not one that was strange to me because I, you know, at seven told my father, well, I'm going to grow up and marry a girl because that's just way more reasonable. (laughs) 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 It's my poor father. (laughs) Like, uh, he put up with a lot. Um... So I actually met my ex-husband in a gay bar. You know, I wasn't confused about who I was, but then I fell madly in love with him. And that was real for me, so that's what we did. And then when he and I split up, it wasn't a surprise to me that where I was interested in, in living next was in a world where a partner I had would be a woman. And I ended up um, partnered to a woman for 19 years. and. That relationship has now ended, and I don't know that I'm any particular thing and don't know I ever was. I think my heart just goes where my heart goes. Yeah, because mm. the first law is love. And mm-hmm. the law is love. The law is love. Yeah. And the gospel, the good news, is peace. And so that's kind of what tugs at me, mm-hmm. is just a, a finding a way toward that peace and loving my way to it by loving everybody I come in contact with, and I don't really care where that leads me. My very, very astute youngest child said to me when I first was in the throes of the relationship that I'd had for 20 years with my female partner when it was ending, my youngest child said, well, mama, just remember, heteronormative presenting relationships are equally valid. You've raised them well. I did. I was like, oh, yeah, because just because something is hetero presenting doesn't actually mean it's not a queer relationship. And really get the hell out of my bedroom. (laughs) Get the hell out of my head and out of my heart. So So I think your um, sort of long walk back to a more organized or traditional Mm -hmm. religious experience really caught gained steam when you moved here to upstate New York from Seattle. So tell us how you got here. 
Oh my goodness. Um, I won't bore you with the details of why I left Seattle, but I was very aware when it's super rainy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge part of it. <laughs> um, when I was leaving there, my deepest mentor is a former Roman priest and he jokingly, but who knows what a joke is anymore, right? Said to me, oh, you're going out there where all those rogue Catholics are. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, oh, there was this huge break in the church in the late 90s. This whole group of people excommunicated and they were like marrying gay people and allowing women to serve at the altar. And so... Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and he was, of course, pretending to be horrified, but was absolutely of a like mind and was teasing me because he knew about my feeling called since I was a child and never finding the right place. Um, and so just first, yeah. Did you find the place before you know like you knew about this so like you were coming here no matter what and I, then he I got told a job here it. oh and he was like oh where you are going has this other component meant to right? be so i get here and it turns out it's way deeper than that this is the burnover district this is the place of the the great awakenings right mm -hmm. like every weird turn in american religiosity happened here <laughs> This place is alive with it. Um, and particularly the church allied with social justice, right? So the patron saints of this area are Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, period. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth, oh, her name just flew out of my head. Anyway, every bit of strange relig religiosity has happened here. And I'm using strange not in a pejorative way. So I get here and I'm like, okay, I don't have any community. I just left my spouse. I've got two children with me and I know no one. I'm going to join the local Episcopal church. <laughs> <laughs> so very first Sunday I was living in this place. I was in church and I walked down there. I was so proud of myself. Were you in church in Seattle when you were living in Seattle? Did you go to church? Off and on. Seattle's a strange place. It, um, you can go three miles and it can take you 45 minutes to do it. So we did go to a lot of different churches and try lots of different things. We never found a place that felt good long term that was easy to get to. Yeah. Um, but every little touch point in Seattle I had with religiosity was always back to, oh, hell, that's the, there's that call again. There's that call again. There's that call again. Um, and none of it ever made any sense. I mean, it just didn't make any sense ever. So I just kept doing what I was doing. God and I had bargained it out, and I was going to be an educator, which was close enough, and certainly a ministry at community colleges, <laughs> where you are the social worker, the advocate, the liaison, the translator, the everything else, right? So I was living it. Um, enough that it didn't matter that I didn't have a formal church relationship. But I got here and I started going to church because it was a way to form community. And my kids went and they, they got it. Like one was 13, one was 17, and they were both like, we get it that you and we are going to church in order to meet people and feel supported because that is something the church serves as a function. So I spent a little time at that church, a couple years, and then all of a sudden there was that call again. I'm like, 
really, this is just stupid. I've got two master's degrees. I don't need any more freaking education. So I decide to go check out the local seminary because it is the most progressive seminary in the United States, Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School. Um, And I knew when I moved here that there was this weird seminary here that ordained nine plus traditions. That's weird. Normally you go to seminary for your tradition and you only Mm -hmm. take classes with people in your tradition. So I already knew there was this weirdo seminary here. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to go to their student blah, blah day and see what happens. So I show up. I get there. It's like a storybook. It starts to snow right as I get there. This this gothic cathedral I'm looking at, you know, it's probably not gothic and people are going to laugh at me, but it felt gothic to me. <laughs> I walk into atmospheric. The, right. I walk into the library and there's this moment in Yentl where she walks into the yeshiva school and there's all the books everywhere and she starts singing about you know, this is one of those moments. I will always remember this chair, that window, the way the light streams in. And that's exactly the experience I had. It's like, this is a bad sign. (laughs) (laughs) So I go to the financial aid talk and the little blah, blah, and the dinner later. And the financial aid lady, whose name is Andrea, she's super fantastic. She was also the registrar, tells me that, you know, there's all kind of scholarships available, and I should at least consider that instead of just taking a class, I should consider being a full-time student because I'll be eligible for scholarships. Well, I already knew that I could do a full-time graduate program while I was teaching full-time because I had just done that at Boston University. And I started digging around and figured out that it would pay about 70% of my tuition if I did it as a full-time student. So... I was in for another degree. <laughs> That's three master's degrees, ladies and gentlemen, in case you haven't been keeping track. Oh, God. So I started school before I ever went to the church and said, I feel called to ministry. <laughs> Maybe I should have a discernment committee. So I'm going to make the next part very brief because it's a little bit painful and totally not interesting. Turns out the Episcopal path was not the path for me. Um, I discovered that over the course of the first two years of seminary, but I was not about to stop getting schooled. I was going to finish my degree, so I finished my degree. And when I graduated, I did all kinds of things. I had house church, um, meaning a giant potluck for any 'er ne'er-do-well who had no place to go on Sunday nights um, for a year and spent some time accidentally in the congregational church in the little town that we were in and all kind of other stuff never went away the call to ministry never went away it just would go away enough to be quiet for a while and then finally in 2019 after my father died I was at a Monday Thursday service and just was like you've got to be kidding this is here again this is so stupid this is so stupid So I met with the bishop in the Episcopal Church. I said, I don't know what to do. I still feel this call. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I don't know what to do. He said, I'm going to see my mother. I'll be gone for two months. He was from another place in the world. And I'm going to take it there in prayer. And when I get back, I'll call you. I was in spiritual direction at the time with an amazing woman, an 89 now, 89-year-old sister of mercy. 
And while the bishop in the Episcopal diocese was gone, she and I continued meeting. And one day she just said to me, oh, I'm so tired of churches not understanding what you have to offer. Have you thought about going to Mary Magdalene Church? And I said, I don't even know what Mary Magdalene Church is, so obviously not. <laughs> and she said, well, you remember all that stuff that happened with Spiritus in the late 90s? And I said, I do. She said, well, one of the women who was part of that branching out started her own church about 10 years ago called Mary Magdalene Church. And I thought this was hilariously funny. <laughs> Who the hell names a church Mary Magdalene Church? That seems like a big F you right off the start, right? Mm. <laughs> so I was also kind of dumbfounded I'd never heard of this church. So weird story in the middle about thunderstorms. Later, the Holy Spirit does what she wants. I ended up that Sunday going to Mary Magdalene Church with my partner at the time, and we were dumbfounded. Walked in, couldn't believe what we were seeing and hearing. And I think I cried through the entire mass. And at coffee hour later, the priest likes to tell the story, the priest at the time likes to tell the story that she horrified herself at coffee hour by um, hearing that I had been to seminary and I wasn't ordained. And that was because I just hadn't found the right path for that. Um, apparently what she let come out of her mouth was, well, maybe you found the right path here. And my spouse at the time overheard this and said it to me on the way home. And I said, if that's what that lady said, then she's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> because who the hell says that? When we met about a week and a half later for coffee, I asked her flat out and she said, I did say that. And I was horrified that came out of my mouth. And I said, good, because I thought you were a crazy person. And she said, that makes sense. That would, that's a crazy thing to say. And I, I can't help but feel like it's auspicious at the least that you showed up here the way you showed up here. The fact that since I started this church 12 years ago, I've been praying, I just want the right person to walk in the door, walk, walk through the front door. And the reason that matters is you'll see tomorrow, no one comes to Mary Magdalene in the front door. Everyone comes in the back door. But she kept praying, I want the right person to walk through the front door. So the three of us, because I'm very formal, parked in the back and walked around and came in the front door. And so she took this as a sign. <laughs> so. so can you tell us a little bit about Mary Magdalene and what kind of church it is? Sure. So in the 90s, when Corpus Christi, which is a Roman Catholic church here in Rochester, was led by Jim Callen and a, and a couple of other folks. Um, the church organically began ministries that included people in the LGBTQ community, began allowing women to take roles, sacramental roles in the church, and they got a lot of pushback from leadership in the diocese, but the the pews were bursting at the seams. Mm. The people of the church, for the most part, wanted it. Over time, it became something that was brought to the attention of the Vatican by people who felt it was antithetical to God's will. People who acted in ways that I would say are very problematic. And 
I have to honor that they believed they were protecting what they understood as the will of God. Um, and so eventually it got to a place where a large number of folks were fired all at once and basically excommunicated. Um, that large group of people did num numerous things, but a large enough group of them came together and tried to find rebirth out of that experience. Now, I, please know I am telling a story I was not here for. Sure. This story has so many sides, it's not even funny. And I'm telling a 22, 23-year-old story for which I was not present. Talk about a 2,000-year-old story for which you were not present. 100%. 100%. So um, I want to be honest about that. And I also want to be thoughtful about how I'm telling it. That church became a thriving community that everyone here calls Spiritus. Spirit, yeah, Spiritus. Everyone calls it Spiritus. I call it Spiritus, but it's Spiritus for everyone here. Um, the pastor who began Mary Magdalene served that community for 10 years and then felt called to start a separate church and began a church here in East Rochester. It initially was in a Presbyterian church here in Fairport. Then it was in a bank in East Rochester. Mm -hmm. Then it was nested in a Lutheran church they were renting space from. And then pretty quickly after they began that rental, the Lutheran church disbanded and offered to sell them the building. So we own the building. Mary Magdalene Church does in East Rochester that used to be Trinity Lutheran. And I want to say they bought the church maybe nine years ago. I think that's right. Our website has all this historical <laughs> information. I walked through the door August 11th, 2019. So it's a... Oh, I didn't tell you that part. Catholic church... Yes. That is outside of the Roman tradition. Correct. And so we call ourselves an inclusive church in the Catholic tradition. Now, the word Catholic means universal. <laughs> so how can that not be inclusive? However, <laughs> it gets the point across. Because four blocks down the road is St. Jerome's Roman Catholic Church. And we are very, very different from St. Jerome's Roman Catholic Church. How are you different? Mm. We include all God's people in the sacraments, all of the sacraments. So LGBTQ plus people are understood as a divine image of God on this earth, the same as every other person. Um, every person, no matter what flavor, no matter what diversity quotient, in terms of ability or identity, gender identity, sexuality, sex, etc., is welcome to also feel the call to ministry and be ordained if they move through the ordination path appropriately. So I say that part because we're not one of those churches that just ordains everybody who says they feel called. There is a very strict ordination 
path. It includes education. It includes psychological evaluation. It includes all the traditional parts of ordination. So I only make that clear because sometimes when you have these alternative rogue versions of church, one of the things that's also gone rogue is making sure that it's not charismatic pastors who don't have the vetting to ensure that they're not potentially problematic for their congregations. And I grew up in a place where charismatic lone wolf pastors were starting things all the time and mm. absconding with widows' monies. And, you know, <laughs> so I'm sensitive to that issue coming from where I come. So. How do you relate with God? Like, clearly you're a pastor, but how do you find it on the everyday? How do you make this connection? Do you see it on everyone? Like, how is your relationship with the higher power? Clearly, you have the format and the, tradi the tradition, but the emotional, spiritual connection, how do you find it every day? I spend uh, at, least, at least some part of every day in total stillness and silence. Mm -hmm. I have to start there. And I'll be honest, I don't know that I could have been a pastor while my children were still at home. I joke all the time that I get it, why priests are not allowed to be married and have families. <laughs> it's a joke. I don't actually believe that's required. I know that for me, the way that I spend time in a place emotionally that allows me to go out in the world and not be an asshole is to find quiet that my life as a parent would never have allowed me, ever. But yet, you know, it's a beautiful story, though, because you were able to get married, have your kids, find your new partner, like go through all of right. the mundane and now be able to be ordained and mundane in the wrong way. So like, no, no, know, no. Like, can, I, can I just shift that language a little yes. bit? Because this term is like so sexy. This is my, my mentor who is a former Roman priest. He calls that the sacred quotidian. I love it. Yes. Yes. So mundanity has that baggage of maybe it's not worthwhile, sure. but the sacred quotidian was my life. And you know what? It still is. Yeah. I am serving a church in which I literally see my role as that quotidian sacredness. Not what big grandiose things can I say and do, but how can I show up every day well enough in me that I can be loving to them. And I may add, your path and your story and your quotidian and, you know, everyday sacred work allows you to relate in a way to their sacred quotidian that a lot of other priests or, you know, pastors cannot do. And I don't mean this to like, you know, say that they're not doing a good job or compare in that way. But I do feel like for me, for example, it would mean a lot more coming from someone that raised kids to talk about the divinity in raising kids than from someone that doesn't have kids and doesn't have to be at home thinking, but I would like five minutes of quiet. Or I will choke you. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> that doesn't sometimes feel so sacred. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, I love that perspective and I thank you for it and I I don't think about that much but it has been on my radar a few times when really painful things have happened to me 
that one edge of a painful thing is also that there's one more experience I've been through that I can walk with people through authentically. Mm. Would you say, um, and you don't have to share what you are not willing to share. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would just say the lesson that you've learned, like all of this painful things that may have happened what's the biggest takeaway that made you come back to your spirituality and religion that god didn't do this god is with me in it Mm. that our believing we're separate from god and separate from each other enables us to act in ways that create separation and that my loving the world and the people in it that matters because it's easy to love humanity. It's hard to love humans. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. That my doing that with my time and my life means there's just a little bit more chance that someone else doesn't have to hurt someone just because they were hurt. And that's the richness that I find on this podcast, mm-hmm. like getting that insight. That, I think, helps a lot of people that are going through mm-hmm. the ugly and the because that happens, right? But, but unfortunately, the church has given us the line for a long time that if we're right with God, bad things won't happen to us. Mm. And it's given us the line that if we just turn it all over to God, well, except we're not supposed to, and this is, I'm, I'm quoting Hank all over the place, but Hank said, we don't teach people to turn the other cheek before we teach them to also take up for themselves, right? Like it, you have to have power for it to be meaningful to cede that power, mm-hmm. not powerless and give me more, right? Yeah. So for me, it is a huge part of what I feel like I get to do in walking with people from a pastoral perspective to remind them what they already know usually, at least inside themselves, that God didn't do something or allow something. People are doing things and God is there with us suffering in that. And that's where speaking Jesus as a language becomes a rich language to speak. Yeah. Because if God suffered, right, then not suffering is awesome. That's sick. (laughs) Yeah. But suffering is part of the situation of being human and Mm. how do we as the image of christ as christ's hands and body and and feet on earth create the sucker to that suffering right that to me is mystical and powerful and astounding and something i'm always reaching for yeah the message became more about you know He had to die on the cross for your sins. Yes, atonement. Right? Which is like the sickest thing ever, right? And they forgot about how all throughout the stations, like he's always surrounded by loved ones who are there because, you know, we are love and love is the law and supporting him. And he always has God with him until, you know, he's like, why have you abandoned me? But... Now I'm going to buy please. <laughs> Let's step away from that. <laughs> so it's interesting. We we are doing these Advent Tuesday services. Mm. Um, I call them Good Trouble Tuesdays because we're mixing up the liturgy a little bit. You know, 
I'm brand new as the full-time pastor at the church. And one of the promises I made is I would not start messing with the Sunday liturgy for a while. <laughs> you know, that's just hard. Change sure. is hard. Sure. So I was like, ooh, but I can play with things on Tuesdays. And so this past Tuesday, one of the three things that I asked people to revision, right, see again, that's what revision is, is we used a version of the Lamb of God, which is, you guys know this, you get to the part in the Mass right before you take communion and you say, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on me. Um, we used a version of that that a friend gave me from a group called The Many. And the words are Lamb of God who suffers with the world. With love poured out, you suffer with the world, have mercy. Lamb of God with love poured out, you suffer with the world, have mercy. Lamb of God who suffers with the world, grant us peace. And I got this email from a woman in Milwaukee that's like, I've been joining you for the last few months. That Lamb of God is the theology that has been in me for as long as I can remember. That Jesus didn't die so I could get something. Jesus reconciled dying with the human experience. He was being and, human. And I can too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that is the kind of thing that I live for. Well, because it's a totally different power paradigm, right? And it is. It changes everything. It does. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis, but who tried to kill Hitler. He was a minister in the church that opposed the church in Germany, the national church, which went along with the Reich. He created a church called the Confessing Church that opposed that, and he was killed by the Nazis. But when he was at, oh, I can't remember what concentration camp he was in when he died, but when he was there, he wrote a number of letters and and documents and in one he talks about the way up is down and I understand that now mm. the more I can not attach to the very things that keep people wanting power the more I'm living in right relationship with God and with everything else and that was the example of Christ that the way up is down mm. And that's the mystical experience in a nutshell. Well, and, you know, in Buddhism, the first noble truth, all life is suffering. Second noble truth, attachment leads to suffering. Exactly. Right? And then we walk the middle path, and that's how we get to nirvana. And Paul Knitter wrote a book, Without the Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. Mm -hmm. And Thich Nhat Hanh wrote Living Buddha, Living Christ, both books align the message of Jesus with the message of Buddha in a way that it's like these are facets on a diamond. And that's one of the many reasons when we get to the part of the mass where we call for God's blessings on things, we legitimately say we ask for your blessings on all people, on people of every religion and faith tradition, and we list them. Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, people of native religion, people of no religion. You know. and, and it's such a, you know, in some ways, it's such a small thing for you to do that. But it's also everything. It bursts people into tears every time. Yeah. 
I can't wait to see how it feels to you to be at the mass tomorrow. I'm looking forward to and it. And hear the shifts in language that are so slight, but so huge. And I will tell you that I was at, um, I was lucky enough to be at Lori's ordination. And it was wonderful in a million different ways um, to see that community and the love that she has for them and they have for her and all the things. But to see a woman leading mass, performing the sacraments, was one of the most surprising, mo surprisingly moving moments of my life. I sat in that pew and cried and I, I don't go to church, you know, but just, <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, you think, well, yes, of course, women should be priests, you know, like <laughs> conceptually, right? It seems like obvious. But it's not something that you see in reality. Yeah. And it's incredible. I can't wait. I can't wait. I mean, I can, I'm getting emotional listening to you getting emotional. Mm -hmm. Just because it also feels like a, like a validation. Because there's mm. this, you know, message getting from the beginning. Like, there's just one way where things mm -hmm. are supposed to be this one way. And... Here you are, mm -hmm. including everyone, loving everyone, and I'm pretty sure pissing off a few, oh yes, like the people from Saint Germain <laughs> down the road. Well, you <laughs> know, and they, and they told you at eight years old, you know, different group of folks, but you know, at eight years old, you were told you can't do that. That's right. But actually, <laughs> well, I never meant to, but I sure did it anyway, didn't and I? <laughs> it seems like somehow it like was always driving the back. Yeah, you know? I mean, I was spiteful as a child, but as an adult, all of my agitation has been accidental. <laughs> <laughs> like Liz can tell you, even in my teaching career, I would always accidentally end up in the position of being some kind of weird culture changer and pissing off half the people and mm -hmm. the other half thinking that's exactly what needed to happen next. So yeah. that liminal space is kind of where I've always existed and it's where I'm comfortable. Well, and there's just, there's a ton of power in the middle space, right? Yeah, and that's bell hooks, right? The power of the margins. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. it's good stuff. So, this has been amazing. Thank you. I agree. Um, we could talk for hours. We, really <laughs> um, this, we might have to break this up into a couple episodes, actually. Um, I will say it occurred to me that one of the podcasts I listened to will weave in things that are on YouTube, like TED Talks, and then mm. have commentary about them. And every sermon I've ever given at Mary Magdalene is available on YouTube. So if you wanted mm. to snip it in things from like my first mass where I talk in homiletic terms about being told my call was no good, right? right? You can weave those pieces in as well. Mm. And oh, we will nice. certainly link to them. Um, so if you if you had to talk to Roxy, oh, she's my goddaughter. <laughs> and if you had to talk to Roxy and give her, you know, the most sort of powerful and informative things that she could do to live a fulfilling life 
and claim her power and walk her path fearlessly, what would you tell her? It's interesting that you asked me that. I'm going to steal from the homily that I'm slowly writing in my head for tomorrow morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would probably start by telling her that she has God within her. Mm. And that means that God is always with her, right? If God is within, we are never alone. Mm. God is with us. But if God is within, that means we are other people's experience of God. Mm. And so if we act with love, then people understand that God is love. And if we don't, then that's how people understand God. And that's Theotokos. That is being the God-bearer. That is recognizing that original sin is collective apathy. And the way to combat original sin is to remind children that they are the hands and feet of Christ. Yeah, that's powerful. That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what else to say? I will will ask you one last thing, and it's, did you feel finally like you had owned your own power when you stepped into St. Magdalene's church, or was it more like, or Mary Magdalene, sorry. That's okay. Um, You can call her saint. She is. Yeah, Yeah. I figured you did, but you know. (laughs) <laughs> but I want to call the church properly, Mary yeah. Magdalene Church. Yeah. But Or did you feel like you were always in your own power all your life? Because I know that at the beginning you were talking on your childhood, you were like, you knew who you wanted to be or what you wanted to do or who you were, but you were also not on your full power because obviously you're finding it. So when did you find it and when did you own your own power? I honestly believe I found my own power when I gave birth to my first child. All right. And the next 24 years, because I was 24 when I had Cal, the next 24 years were my education in not misusing that power. Mm. So when I stepped into the pulpit at Mary Magdalene Church, the morning after, two mornings after I was ordained to say my first mass, I didn't feel like, yes, I did it. I felt like... I owe. It's a more humbling experience than what one people like one would think of like when you think of power. It it's is more like a it surrender. is the way up is down. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. That power inherently is misused if it comes from a place of this is mine. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. We've we've talked with I think almost all our guests about this idea that we are conditioned to think about power as mine and as something that is destructive and repressive and oppressive. Think of how motherhood prepares us for that message, right? Right? Like How dare you not ordain women? Women understand better than 
anyone if they've had children. Right. The indignity of right. But this idea of reclaiming the yes. notion of power yes. as a creative force, yep. as opposed to a destructive one, exactly is. You know, I think it, I just think it's incredibly important, and mm-hmm. you know, part of what we're trying to do here, and how women really do understand this. Yeah, yeah there's like a, a struggle way. owning power, as like at least with the people we spoke with. That when you talk about power, in your case, you have it very clear, and it's more like. This That's is my anthropology training, right. though, right? Yeah, but I mean, we're let's be but, but these some people we've spoken with, you know we're conditioned to not want to think that we have power because power is not good, right? It's something that you're using to hurt or somehow impact other folks in a negative kind of way. And how do we get women in particular to reclaim that idea of the power, power as creation? Yeah. And but, power is love. And we can so m- easily misuse things by taking the perspective, I don't have any power, I'm just a regular person, because it doesn't honor and own that if others perceive you as having power, for them, you do. And you think you're just going along being a regular person, and you're devastating them intellectually or emotionally because you're not attending to the fact that they see you as powerful. Right, mm-hmm. and again, that's my anthropology training, and my teaching in community colleges for how many years? Twenty-two years. Um, that probably is the single most important skill I have in serving the church that I serve. Is that remembering just because I don't think of myself as any different from any of them, they may think of me as different, and I need to be honoring of that in how I engage and treat them. And I, I can assure you, they are, because. Of, you know, the traditional way of looking at religion, organized religion, right? Like you are in a role, quote unquote, of power. That's right. By standing there on the altar, right? That's right. When I raise my arms, that makes a visual meaning. And that visual meaning courses through our bodies. Yeah. Right. Especially if we've been reared in a church that has all those inherent hierarchies. All right. I mean, lots to think yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> a lot to think about. Thank you so much. It is my this pleasure. Thanks, lovely. Laurie. I love you both very much. I can't wait to go to church tomorrow. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Hey, hey, all of you on social media can now find Women, Magic and Power podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Go ahead and like us and follow us on Spotify or your preferred podcast platform so you won't miss out on new conversations like the one we'll have next week with youth collaborator Deborah Jodry.